Hey, good morning, everybody. As you can see, the, we have our communion kneelers up here this morning, and today we are coming to uh, worship the Lord through the sacraments. And if this is your first time here, don't worry, we'll guide you through the process and uh, kind of hold your hand through it and uh, let you experience this place of worship. So what we're about to do is to kind of prepare us to come to this uh, by turning to Scripture. We're in Acts chapter 17. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn there now. And we've been studying the book of Acts, and uh, we're, we're taking a big leap here. And you may be wondering, man, what? I think we were on chapter 11 last week, and now we're like jumping over six chapters. And a couple of reasons why we're doing this. I'm not saying they're right reasons, but one, we have Advent coming up, so we only have a few more weeks left in this series. And two, the whole like second half of the book of the Acts, a book of Acts, is the story of this apostle named Paul and his missionary journeys going around the known world preaching the gospel. And so when we land on chapter 17, this is like one of the most famous sermons in all of scripture, where Paul is in Athens and, you know, all the Stoics and the, you know, all the Epicureans and these philosophers are all standing around and going, yes, we want to hear from you, Paul. And so he's on Mars Hill and he preaches the gospel. But before he got there, let me give you a little background. Um, what happened was they were traveling through Jerusalem and Syria and modern day Turkey and then jumping over into Greece and came down to Athens. But on this journey, some crazy things were happening. Like when they were in Philippi, they got thrown into jail. Paul and Silas were in jail. Uh, they preached the gospel in Philippi and like uh, Lydia, the modern day, like she was the uh, Kardashian of Philippi. And she was the fashionista, so she is very prim and proper and traveled the world and very wealthy and had it. And then the other member of the first church in Philippi was this slave girl who was possessed by a demon and could tell the future. I know, go back and read it. And then the third member of this triad of the church plant was the greasy dude who ran the prison on the midnight shift. So here's the night worker, a demon-possessed, former demon-possessed, and a fashionista, and that was the foundation of the church of Philippi. Well, they ran into a lot of trouble, and then uh, Paul's companions sent him onto Athens to take a break. And this, this whole passage, um, if, if you're a theologian and you just love this sermon, you're going to be greatly disappointed in my sermon. I'll prepare you for that right now, because we're only going to cover, we're going to read the whole story, but we're only going to cover... Uh, one verse. And it's verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, meaning he was waiting for Luke and for Timothy and for the whole crew, Silas and their buddies, he was waiting for them. And he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. That something had happened in Paul's life to where he was seeing something but he wasn't just seeing something. He allowed himself to be moved by what he saw. And here's the dangerous part. When we allow ourselves to be moved by what we see, it always moves us. So <laughs> over the last month or so, up here on the corner of Hillsborough and Woodmont, I don't know if you've seen this, but there have been families up there begging where you pull up to the stoplight and there is a father holding a sign saying, please help family in distress. And over in the grass is a mother with little children, you know, and like she's holding a baby and they have a couple like 
seven and eight-year-olds kind of just playing around while dad's on the corner begging. And I got to tell you, I, I struggle so hard with that. Because when I pull up the light, I don't want to look at it. I, I don't want to see it. I got turn away from it intentionally because I know that if I see it, there's a possibility that I'm going to be moved by what I see. And if I'm moved by what I see, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to pull my truck over and get out and go, okay, what's going on here? How do I help? Because when we see something and then we're moved by it, we move. And I got to tell you, I have all kinds of walls around me to protect me from being moved by something. Because I, I, come on, I can't care about everything. I can't care about everyone. Like I can't, can't, I can't craft my life to be caring about everything I see. And I got these walls that I use to protect me from being moved. And that's a dangerous thing for us. I'm just confessing to you, it's a dangerous thing for me because we're the church. And we're the church, we're the people that are experiencing renewal. Like when Christ came into the world, he went to the cross for you and for me. And he took our sins to the cross so that he could make us new. And when we come here on Sunday morning, we get renewed in our newness. The old is gone, the new is gone, the new has come. We're, we were once dead, but now we are alive. The power of the Holy Spirit through the resurrection is now thriving within us. But renewal always leads to mission, always. It always leads to mission. And this is where we get in trouble because we go, nope, ain't going. Ain't going to do it. <laughs> no way. I ain't pulling this truck over. I've got a date with a smoothie at Smoothie King. I, I got to go. I'm hungry. Like I'm, and so what we do is we don't go to mission. Then this renewal gets stale and we come back for more renewing and we keep hitting this wall until church just is so boring, we can hardly stand it. Because we've been going to church so long, and man, it's boring to me, I don't get anything out of it. The worship, man, why don't they play new songs? Why doesn't that guy use a new illustration or something? Come on, make us laugh. Because we want more and more renewal because it's growing stale because we're not going on mission. Because we were designed to be renewed for mission. And when we go to mission, it adds to the renewal. It empties the tanks. So when we come back for renewal, we're like, man, fill my pockets. I got to go. Here we go. That's why seeing is so dangerous. When Renee and I lived in Charlottesville, our family was very young. Uh, we only had one child. He was a newborn. And we lived in this townhouse. Like it, I'm not sure you could call it a townhouse. It was something. I don't know what it was. But it was 900 square feet of close living. Love grows in a small house. We are growing a lot of love. But when you live in a townhouse community, you can't avoid your neighbors. They're everywhere. They're all around you. And uh, I tried. All right. But one night I woke up. It was like two in the morning. And I heard yelling coming from our parking lot right out in front of our house. So I jumped to the window and I opened up my, you know, those, we had those yucky little like two inch plastic blinds, you know. And I just kind of cracked them open because I didn't want them to see me seeing them, but I wanted to see them. And it was our neighbors across the street. It's a married couple with two kids. The kids are like five and seven and they're in the parking lot going at it. Like it's just, I'm like, oh, and the kids are standing at the door watching mom and dad go at it. And I'm watching this. And the first thing that came out of my mouth, like the apostle Paul, Renee, you got to see this. 
wake up, wake up. The neighbors are going at it. I knew this was going to happen. I knew they were going to go at each other. They're disrupting my sleep. And I'm looking at Renee, Renee, get over here, get over here, Renee. And I turn around and Renee's gone. And then I see a shadow right underneath my window and a third person is running into the melee. And I realize, oh, sweet Jesus, that's Renee. (laughs) She wasn't in the room with me. She was out the door. Now, I won't get this right. You can ask her what she really said. This is how I remember it. She ran over to the two of them that were going this, and she picked up their kids and she goes, when y'all are ready to be adults, you can come get your kids from my house. (laughs) Mm, Strong woman. (laughs) What happened? Well, she saw, but she was also moved. She knew the name of those kids. She couldn't sit and hide with me behind our two-inch little blinds and just watch and be entertained. She knew the names of those kids and her love compelled her now to move and to put herself in harm's way. That's who we are. We're the church. We're not the ones that run away. We're the ones that run in, right? I need renewal to run in, but I need to run in to experience renewal. Are y'all tracking with me? Okay. So you ready? Keaton? is reading for us today. Where are you, Keaton? Oh, thank you, sweet Jesus. And the voice of the Lord has shown up. We need that because it's a long passage. He's gonna read for you not just what, what Paul saw, how Paul was moved, and then how Paul moved in. He's gonna read you the sermon that Paul preached, which you can go study at another time and uh, experience the weight of this sermon. But Keaton is in Acts chapter 17. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, just remember, you can always grab them from the windowsills. There's on the table when you walk in. If you don't own a Bible, please, would you take one of these? Make it your own. My greatest prayer is that we're having to buy Bibles every six weeks. Okay, so take them. Take them. Give them away if you need to. Uh, But today, give your full attention to my favorite reader. (laughs) It's nothing against any of you other readers, all right? Just, you'll understand if you've never, just please read. Starting in verse 16. (laughs) While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, "Uh, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations 
that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that for him, for, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when, we will judge, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the uh, Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thank you, brother. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. <clears throat> now, Lord, we pray that uh, Holy Spirit prepare us as we come to this table to worship you. In Christ's name, amen. So Paul is in Athens. If you look in uh, chapter 17, what had happened was they were in Berea and uh, some troublemakers came and Paul has experienced a lot of trouble. I mean, you can go read about his story. He was stoned at one point to where they thought he was dead, like he's been in and out of jail. A lot has happened. And so his friends said, hey, Paul, we're gonna give you an escort. You just need to go to Athens and chill. Like you need to take a break, man. And so he goes to Athens and he's waiting. Look there in verse 16. While Paul was waiting, like this was his vacation. And while he was on vacation, it says uh, that he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So what did Paul actually see? I mean, this was Athens. Uh, if you know any history, this is the place where Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, this is the place of great literature. This was a place of great education and incredible art. At one point, it was the seat of democracy. This was where uh, the world was basically run. At this time, it's no longer that, but it is the seat of culture. This is where culture is flowing in and out of Athens. And the city was full of idols. One historian said that it would be easier to find a god in Athens than a human because there were so many. In fact, there were so many that they actually had an idol that was marked to the unknown god. Like, we, we've listed as many gods as we could possibly actually find or make up, but we know we're going to miss something. So here is the unknown god idol. They had idols to Poseidon. They had idols to Zeus, to Apollos, to Hermes, and then to the unknown god. And this is what's great about this sermon. This is why so many people love this sermon, because Paul didn't, uh, didn't condemn them. He actually used where they were and their culture, and he used it as a springboard to introduce to them who Jesus is. That it's natural for you to want to worship. Now let me tell you what you were made to worship. Let me tell you about the unknown God that you don't know. So a lot of people love this. A lot of church planners geek out on this. You know, let's be culturally relevant. But I'm not that cool. So we're just going to stay on one verse. That Paul saw the city was full of idols. So let's have a little fun. Does Nashville have idols? Oh, some of you seem to know. All right. What, give me an example. What's an idol that we have here in Nashville? The Titans. Man, 
God bless your brother. That's not an item. Yes, yes, you're right. Sports, sports is a huge idol. What's another idol in this city? Money. Money, money, money. money. All right, what else? Entertainment. Entertainment. Or I would like to even call it experiences. Like we, we put experiences like, did you go to that show? Did you catch that? Did you know, were you there? Like we love experiences. What else? Yeah, yeah. You know, I kind of put it in this list. You guys are getting them. Like education is a big idol in this city. We really believe that the problems of the world, most of them could be solved with education. We also believe that beauty, that most of your problems could be solved if you were more beautiful or you had something that made you beautiful. Fame is a big idol. We love, we, we love people that are famous. We love going somewhere and standing next to us is somebody, you know? We love that, and we love the idea that maybe we could experience some of that, our success, our experiences, our health. I think health is a big idol. So, let, so now that we see them, who cares? Like, honestly, like, it doesn't really change us, does it? It doesn't really move us. Like, it doesn't take an apostle to see the idols of Nashville. And it doesn't take some spiritual giant to see the idols of this city. And we can point them out, name them out. We could probably do that for another 10 minutes and y'all would be great at it. Who cares? And the reason we don't care is because there's nothing about that that moves me. There's nothing about it. So let's talk about it in a way that hopefully will move you. What are your idols? Do you have an idol or do you have idols? I want to suggest, and what we're going to do before we come to this table, I've got to start, we're going to do some exposing. But before we do some exposing, I have to get you to agree with me that you may be blind to the things that you truly worship. That they're so close to you and you're so distracted by your love of them that you don't see them. And I found this fun little video that I think might help us rethink that maybe we need the Lord outside of us to expose what it is that we truly love. All right? Okay, show the video. The monkey business illusion. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. The correct answer is 16 passes. Did you spot the gorilla? For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it. But did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. When you're looking for a gorilla, you often miss other unexpected events. And that's the monkey business illusion.
So this was an experiment that was done by two guys that actually won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for this, that uh, this idea that when we're so focused on one thing, it's very easy to be distracted and not clearly see the other. And so when they first uh, ran this experiment and they showed a room like this, the video of the people passing the ball uh, with the gorilla walking through, then they would survey how many people saw the gorilla and only about 50% of the people that watched the video actually saw the gorilla. Because they were so busy counting the passes, go and do some research on this. But those of you that have seen this before, you probably knew the gorilla was coming out. But how many of you saw the curtain change? That's two, three. How many of you saw the person on the black team walk off the screen? Okay, maybe 1% of this room. And is it possible that you're so focused on certain things in your own life that you're blind to your own idols? And you know, the reason I point this out is because Jesus said, you better be very careful. If you're better at identifying the idols of this city than you are at identifying your own idols, then Jesus says this to you, deal with the log in your own eye before you deal with the splinter in your neighbor's eye. And Jesus is saying, it's not that we don't deal with the splinter in our neighbor's eye, but if we're not dealing with the log in our first eye, that is a big mistake. And if you have an easier time identifying Nashville's idols than you do for your own, it may be because you have a log in your own eye. So what is that log? Well, what's an idol? Let's just start there. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything. Anything so central to your life that if you should lose it, your life would be hardly worth living. Let me read that again. An idol is more important to you than God. Anything. It's anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. So now we're going to go on a journey to try to do some things to help us identify our idols, okay? One is, an idol often is the thing that hides in the place where I put my hope. In fact, it's hiding in the place of my deepest fears because my fears and my hopes are connected together. If you want to know what your idol is, what is your greatest fear? So one of your greatest fears may be that I fear that I'm going to be abandoned by the people that I love. And if you grab that fear, you know, like a vine in your garden and you start pulling that vine and it's just pulling up. And when you finally pull it up, you're going to see what you hope in. If my fear is I'm going to be abandoned, it could be that your hope is, is that nobody in your life will abandon you. That your idol is other people never leaving you. Or it may be your greatest fear is that you're going to get sick. That you're going to, that you're going to get some kind of cancer or you're, you know, something's going to happen to you physically. And if you start pulling up that fear, you find that your hope is health that what's gonna save me and make my life meaningful is I'm gonna be physically fit and I'm gonna be healthy my whole life. An idol is what hides in that place where my mind goes when it really has no place to go. That I think about it effortlessly. For example, does anybody know what the Powerball number is right now? Am I the only one that knows this? Am I exposing my idol? <clears throat> 1.6 billion dollars. And I know for about half the room, I just ruined the rest of this sermon. 
Because you're thinking, wow, what is that? The payout would be what, like a billion? What would I do with a billion? The interest alone on that every year. You could... It's what takes my imagination captive without any effort at all. It's where I spend my money effortlessly, get more tickets. It's the not enough place in my life. You know what I mean by that? When you look in the mirror and you go, not enough, that my idol is, what is enough? Well, I don't have enough success. My idol, I need to get more success. Or I need to get more money. Or I need to get more resources. Tim Keller often quotes, he's a pastor that started a church up in New York and has written a bunch of books. And he talks about this topic quite a bit. And he says, in the movie Rocky, Rocky turns to Adrian and says, you know, I got 12 rounds to prove that I'm not a bum. To who? To him. 12 rounds to prove that I'm not a bum. What are your 12 rounds? In your life, what is it that you deeply believe that if you had, did, or accomplished, that then would make your life worth living? So uh, <laughs> about a month ago, we get our elders all together around my fire pit in my backyard. We're meeting tonight, but we get together once a month and we pray for you guys. We talk about the work of the church. But the last time we got together, I said, hey guys, we're gonna have some fun tonight. And they were like, oh, great. Normally we don't have fun. I said, no, <laughs> we enjoy ourselves as we should. And I said, tonight we're going to play a little game show called What's Your Favorite Idol? And so <laughs> they said, oh, joy. And um, so I took them. This is a book that, um, that I've been reading that I've found immensely interesting. It's Arthur Brooks from Strength to Strength. Uh, finding success, happiness, and deep purpose in the second half of your life. I need to read this so when I get there, I can really begin to understand it. <laughs> but he talks about, and he's, he's a Catholic who talks about faith. Um, I, I think that this guy, if you read this book, I think that he gets all the way up to here, and we're going to talk a little bit about why I feel like he stops here. And uh, so if you read this book, take this step with Midtown. But enjoy up to that point, because all truth is God's truth. And he's talking about Thomas Aquinas, who is a Catholic theologian. And uh, he's talking about, hang on, let me find it first. Um, he's talking about this guy um, had what he believed four primary idols that we all kind of dip our toe in. And uh, so he talks about this. He says, in his view, people who opt for the world's path choose substitutes for God. He calls them idols that objectify the idolater and never satisfy the craving for happiness. In other words, what we understand is we, we substitute God. We got something in our lives that we love more than God. And it really is a fool's errand because idols always promise going to make me whole and give me purpose in life or we have kids and we go finally my kids are going to give me meaning and stuff. everything that we idolize we eventually demonize because they never deliver on what it is that they promise so he goes on and he says here are the four money power pleasure and honor money power pleasure and honor now money we get i don't have to explain that one power we kind of understand that one. Pleasure, that's not a problem. We live in Nashville. What is this honor, though? And let me explain this before we play the game, all right? Honor here refers to fame, to be known to many. But 
Before you dismiss this as not a problem for you, it also refers to fame's insidious cousin, prestige and admiration. The favorable attention of people who matter. For many readers who are successful but anxious, professionals or social prestige is indeed a huge attachment. Okay, so what, what are they again? Money, power, pleasure, prestige, admiration, the love of other people. Everybody likes me, all right? So here's what we're going to do. Which is your idol? And here's how it works. Rank Thomas Aquinas' four attachments with respect to how much control they have over you. Starting at the bottom with what attracts you the least, maybe you don't like having power over other people. So that would be like number four. And perhaps while money is nice, you're not going to kill yourself for it or kill somebody else for it. You know, that's number three. Now keep going. Maybe pleasure is trickier one for you, perhaps. Uh, you can control it even though it pulls at you. And let's say that's number two, and that leaves fame or prestige or admiration. The monkey on your back of always wanting the favorable attention of others. The, things, the thing you are a little ashamed of, but that always pulls at you and never satisfies. That's your idol. And the more of it you get, the more of an object you become. What's your idol? Some of our idols are, are really places of shame for us. Because maybe you were traumatized when you were young uh, because you never felt like that you were pretty enough. Or there was something that made you not like the other kids. And so your idol comes from that pain and you really believe if I could become beautiful, if I could get more beauty, and even though I'll never get it, I still idolize beauty as the source of real life. Some of you, maybe you grew up and your big brother or your big sister was smarter than you. And they always received all the accolades and the applause of mom and dad. And you really grew up thinking, if I could just be as smart as that, or if I could be that athletic, then I would get the love that they seem to be getting. And so you spend your life comparing the inside to other people's outside. And you believe that if your inside could get to what they're doing on the outside, then you would find life and have it to the full. For me, one of mine is we grew up very poor and we never really had anything. And it's easy for me. One of my shame is when I don't have enough is to believe that if I just had more, if I had more resources, then, then that's where life would be. That's why it's hard for me sometimes to be generous because I always live this idea that there's never enough. And I really have to keep taking that idol to the Lord. Like you're, I don't have enough to make sure I'm sufficient and I have what I need. What is yours? In Jonah chapter two, Jonah says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now think about this for a minute. When we cling to foolish idols, we forfeit the grace that could be ours. So what we're talking about this morning is we're not talking about getting better. We're talking about unhinging ourselves from the things that are blinding us so that we can experience more deeply the grace of God that is already ours. For us to do that, let me see if I can do something here. Wait, let's use another color. Uh, wow, I wish I was a better artist but I want you to imagine that this is a tree. All right? Here's a bird. Tree. Uh, 
And what I want you to imagine is, hey, if your idol is, I love money, I love money, and I really believe that if I lost all my money or success or whatever your idol may be, power, money, pleasure, or prestige, whatever it is, all that is is the fruit of the tree. And if you stop at the fruit of the tree, you just need some kind of plan to get better at managing your idol. But if you go and realize that every fruit is fed by a root, what is the root? And I'll tell you my root. If this root up here is my fear that I don't have enough, the root of that fear is God is not enough. The root of my fear is not that I need more so that I can feel secure. The root is, God, I don't believe you for my security. I don't believe that you're strong enough to hold me in your hands. I don't believe that I have everything I need for life and godliness. And I don't believe that when I don't have everything that I think I need for life and godliness, that you're saying, yes, I do have everything I need for life and godliness. So that what I don't have is really your gift because I don't need it. I don't believe you. And the root of my idol is, and get, it's not I don't believe you. You're a liar. I don't trust you. And when I turn my back on my father, and then I start walking this road without his grace, that is a dangerous road for people that are a part of renewal and mission. And what I'm pleading with you today is we recognize our idols and the roots of our idols. Why? So that we can experience grace. Because the power of what we're talking about is the power of grace. Let me read for you. This is Paul Zoll, a theologian who writes a lot about grace. Listen to this grace that we're talking about. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. The cliche definition of grace is unconditional love, but it's a true cliche for it's a good description of the thing. Let's go a little further though. Grace is a love that has nothing to do with you, the beloved. It has everything and only to do with the lover. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with the intrinsic quality or so-called gifts, whatever they may be. It reflects a decision on the part of the giver, the one who loves in relation to the receiver, the one who is loved that negates any qualification the receiver may personally hold. In other words, God's grace is grace is one-way love. The one-way love of God. When I cling to foolish idols, I forfeit living in that place. But as a believer, that's the place I'm in. But I close my eyes to it and my ears to it. And so when I repent all the way down to the root, I'm repenting. I'm letting go. I'm not getting fresh forgiveness because at the cross, he took all my sins with him to the cross. Future past. I'm not repenting to get fresh forgiveness. I'm repenting. difficult to believe. I heard the story a number of years ago. I don't know if it's true or not. I want to believe it is true. But there was a restaurant here in town and it was considered one of the nicest restaurants in town. I mean, everybody was fighting to get in. Can we get a table at the restaurant? Nobody can get a table at the restaurant. 
And there was a homeless guy that heard about this restaurant and decided he was going to go to the dumpster behind the restaurant and see how good the food really is. So he got the dumpster and he's like, man, this is really good food. And he's enjoying dumpster diving for the food that's being thrown away from this exotic, unbelievable, expensive restaurant. And the owner of the restaurant was taking out trash and caught him in his dumpster. And he said, get out of my dumpster. The guy was busted and he got out of the dumpster and he goes, what are you doing? He goes, I heard you were the best restaurant in town. I wanted to come and buy that. That's some good stuff. And he goes, come with me. And the homeless guy thought, man, I'm in trouble. And they walk through the kitchen and they go into the dining room and he goes, sit down. And he sat him at the owner's table. And he sat back and he goes, what are you hungry for? He goes, I don't know. He said, bring him a menu. Brought him a menu. He goes, what do you want? And he said, the chef, do it. He brought it in. He ate it. And the owner sat there and watched him eat it. He said, how was it? He said, man, it was amazing. And he goes, okay, here's the deal. Anytime you're hungry, anytime you want to eat, anytime you need food, this is your table. You walk into that front door, you sit at your table and you order anything you want from the menu. It is yours. Stay out of my dumpster. That's grace. The owner caught him in the dumpster the next day. Why? Because our father catches us in the dumpster. We can't believe that God's grace is that good. We can't believe, man, that's the kind of love that you have for me. Don't you know that I love money? I know, come and eat at the table. Don't you know that I've got this struggle with this sexual addiction? I know, come and eat at the table. Don't you know that I'm hiding my addiction to alcohol? Don't you know that I don't love the people around me? Don't you know I have more questions than confidence and faith? I know, come and eat at the table. Come and eat at the table. That is so hard to believe. And let me tell you why it's so important for us to believe. Paul said this in 1 Timothy. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Yes? And Paul said, of whom I'm the worst. Of whom I'm the worst. You see what's happening here. Paul could see the idols of Athens because he could see his own idols and his need for grace, which moved him with grace toward the Athenians. And when his heart was moved, he moved. That's why if any of you have ever struggle with an addiction, you've been to AA and you got a sponsor. They never give you a sponsor that's never touched a drop of alcohol. Here's Bert. Bert has never even tasted alcohol. He's never been tested. He's never been tried. He has no desire for it whatsoever. He's going to be your sponsor. What? Are you kidding me? No, you want a notorious drunk, somebody who has burned down the city so that when you come to them and go, Hey, I'm burning my life down. They go, I get it. Been there. I know. Come on, brother. Let me take you by the hand and we're going to walk to the journey of grace. That's how we get moved for this city. If you have no knowledge of your gods and you have no knowledge of your need for grace, who cares what's going on in this city? I don't want to see it anyway. But if we see ourselves and we experience and taste grace, then we begin to have grace for other people. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, hey, Midtown Put off your old self in which you used to belong to your former manner of life and its corruption through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
I think when we do that, we're humble enough to admit our idols and we bring them to the Lord and we bring them to this table. It moves us. And we're, we're not going to go to Mars Hill. You know, we're probably not going to preach down in front of the Parthenon. <laughs> you know, Paul probably would. But it might mean that in your living room that you move with grace toward the people in your family. It may be that in your kitchen, when your child is saying, if I could only get that part in the play, then that would make me somebody special. Or if I could just get invited to that party, or if I could just get that grade, that you go, oh, I smell that. I've been there. I know that. Or maybe it's on the sidelines at the soccer game, and you're talking to a soccer friend, and you realize they're going through a divorce, and they just need somebody to move toward them without judgment, but actually love. It could be in the carpools. It could be that person that always sits at the bar alone. It could be just caring for the needy, or here's a radical idea. It could be the person that's like six inches from you right now. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to come to this table, and we're going to bring our idols. We all got them. Hopefully you've seen them, and now you realize through the gift of repentance that we experience renewal so the Lord can call us with a heart for others. So we're gonna, bring our, we're gonna bring our idols up here in this time of worship and communion and bring them before the Lord. And ask that he would pour his grace into our lives. Now, this is a sacrament, um, which means this is family business here. If you're not a believer here today, if this whole Christian thing is new to you, hey, we love having you here. In fact, we love your questions. Don't hide and pretend to be a Christian. Be bold about your, I'm not a Christian. <laughs> we want to know you. We, we want to walk that road with you, but this table is not for you. This is for those that de desperately need Jesus and know it and have experienced it in their own lives. Paul says something about this table that might be good for us to hear. He says to the Corinthians, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember that word, remembrance. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup and the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink. Drink it in remembrance of me. Forever eats this bread and drinks this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's the table of remembrance. We are his. He bought us with the blood and the body of Christ. We are his. Remember, remember, remember. I am righteous now. I've been made holy. Remember, remember, and then proclaim. And I'm going to proclaim that over my life and over my idols because he is good. So the way we do that here at Midtown is the band's going to come in in just a second, and we're entering into a time of worship. And for those of you that hate silence or being still, it's going to be hard Stay with us, okay? Let this be a practice for how you kind of enter into the quiet road of spirituality in your own life, uh, Monday through Saturday. Um, but we're going to enter in time of worship. When you're ready in a, in a spirit of prayer and worship, uh, then come on up. Um, just pile in, get shoulder to shoulder, don't be afraid. Um, when you get up here to the kneelers, if it helps to kneel, go ahead. If it doesn't, don't. Don't worry about this. It's your time. But when you're ready to receive communion, just put your hands out and the servers will serve you communion. Remember, the inner circle is grape juice, the outer circle is wine, so uh, you make the choice of what is best for you. If you get up here and you're like, man, you're in a specially difficult place in your life, God made us to do community together, 
and you need somebody to pray for you, just cross your chest and those who are serving will stop what they're doing and they'll pray because you matter. Uh, when you leave this place uh, and you go out this door here, kind of circle back around to your seat, there are prayer walls out there, uh, little tags where you can write prayer requests. Uh, when you leave a prayer, take a prayer. Um, make sure it's anonymous. This is a place where we pick each other's journey up in a spiritual way and carry one another. Take that prayer request with you, put it in a prominent place and pray for that person this week um, and ask the Lord to uh, meet them in their need. Okay. Let me pray for us. And when you're ready, please come. Lord, our hearts are like idle factories. They just produce so many things that I believe is going to give me more life than you. And my heart's affection just seems to uh, fade away from you into so many other things. I really believe, Lord, sometimes that, um, that my idols are going to give me life and I'm always shocked at the same results. I pray now that, Lord, you'd give us the grace to come and to lay them before you. Because when we do that, it redeems them, Lord. It, when we make work our idol, we lay it down only to redeem the beauty of work. When we confess our idol, Lord, of success, it puts success back in the right place and redeems it. Same with relationships and beauty, these wonderful things that you have made that we have idolized and made them ugly. Redeem them again in our lives, Father. So hear our confession. Hear our hunger, Lord, to have our eyes uh, opened. Meet us in this place with this one-way love, this grace beyond even the scope of our understanding and pour it in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.